matchup. 40, pushes the man, 35, look at him go. 30, 25, he's at the 20, gets the block. He's gone. Head pass, touchdown. Welcome to Any Given Monday, episode number seven. I'm Hayden Adoni. Joining me as always, Duncan Song. Welcome, Dunk. Thanks, Nads. Look... As always, we've got a huge show to get into today. Lots to cover. We've got a free agency recap for what's happened in the last week. We've got more draft previews coming your way, guys. We're doing safeties and quarterbacks tonight. We've got Ask Nads back. It's going to be a huge show. And of course, we're going to cap it off with a slam dunk. So let's dive straight in, Nads. Let's get to social media first. Let's get it out of the way. What's your love this week? Okay, so Amari Cooper on Instagram, he posted a photo of the huge house. I'm talking, it looks like a mansion. And he's bought also a car. It's brand new, a nice big four-wheel drive for his mum. And the caption reads, I grew up in the projects. We didn't even own a car. The whole story is way too long and melancholic. But just know a dream can go a long way if it's followed by faith and hard work. It took us 20 plus years, but now my mother has the house and car of her dreams. You deserve it, mama. I love you. Hashtag just the beginning. Now, I, I love this because one, I'm a mama's boy by by trade. <laughs> that's that's never going to change. But I think it's really just great to see someone um, realize their dreams on a grand scale and still have the humility and the um, nobleness to go through through with this and not shut their family out, which you can see um, with so many other other NFL players before. Yeah, look, I think this is fantastic as well. I, I love seeing people who are in the positions that some of these guys are with huge money, you know, huge incomes, still being aware of where they came from and what they've had to go through to get there and not leaving behind the people that have helped them on their way. Because becoming a professional athlete... It's not just about you. There are so many people along the way who make those sacrifices for you and seeing stuff like this when they, you know, they actually take the time and effort and they recognize the contributions of the people in their lives um, and they share some of their success with them. I think it's fantastic. So I'm totally on board with this one. What have you got for me in terms of your hate, mate? All right. So we've got two health announcements that came from former players in the league, which are quite sobering. So... Dwight Clark, he was a two-time Super Bowl champion with the 49ers, and he's known for making the catch. Um, he, he recently came out and said that he's been diagnosed with ALS. So ALS is also known as MND in Australia. And then we've got Gail Sayers, um, who was one of the, the greatest running backs of all time, if not the greatest, um, played, for, played for the Bears. And... Um, his family came out and said he's been um, diagnosed with dementia. Now, I, I want to bring up these mental illnesses because it, it, a study has shown recently that research is showing ALS in particular, it's four times as prominent in NFL football players compared to the general population. And then at the same time, Gail Sayers' doctors have been quoted, and in quotation marks, I say, no question, close quote, that um, the repetitive hits that Sayers would have taken definitely played a part in in his condition. And I, like we see it with the AFL. The AFL has the, the freeze MND because one of its former players and prominent coaches, Neil Danaher, he was diagnosed with MND. And he's like um, formed a charitable foundation and the AFL have really got behind it and they, they pretty much do this... Um, 
almost like a, a charitable awareness campaign similar to how um, the NFL do their Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And yep. I, th- I think it's really great. And I, I really would like to see a similar approach for brain and mental diseases in the NFL because it, it we really need to see a greater awareness on these types of conditions because it's becoming more and more frequent over time. And the people we're seeing that are being diagnosed with such conditions are the very people who have made the game what it is today. Yeah, it's a real tough one. I mean, we talked a little bit about concussions a few weeks ago in the, in the slam dunk we talked about the uh, Carolina parents and, and that rule it's a real tough one because it's I don't want to say it's in, inherent in the game but there's a huge risk when you play the sport that you know you're going to suffer mental illness at some point down the track whether that's dementia whether that's concussion whether that's uh, ALS or, or anything in that whole category of sort of head injuries it's a huge risk to play the game but you know, we, we have a problem in the sense of where can you draw the line in, in what is allowed in the game without losing the spirit of the game? You know, we don't want to wrap up our players in cotton wool because then, you know, you lose basically all of the contact part of it, which is a huge part of the sport. So it is a real tough one. Um, at this point in time with, with the technology and, and the, I guess, medical science that we have so far and, and where we've gotten to with that, I think the best thing we can do is just spread awareness of it um, and hopefully as we continue to advance as a society, uh, we can come up with ways to, to cure some of these issues um, and hopefully we won't lose the parts of our game that we really love. No, exactly. Look, move, moving on for, from a little bit of a sobering thought, let, let's look at the, the free agency update from the last week, mate. Yeah, we got a little bit down there for a second. Let's get it back up, mate. Let's get it lighthearted again. No, exactly. So let's talk about the running backs. Yeah, so look, it's an interesting situation. I mean, we've been kind of talking about this for a while now, about how deep this draft is and how low the demand is for running backs at the moment. So as of our recording of this podcast, we've still seen no signing of Adrian Peterson. He's still, he's still uh, a free agent. Jamal Charles hasn't signed. Um, so they're two big names that we've talked about all offseason that still haven't found suitors. Um, Eddie Lacy has signed with the Seahawks. We touched on that uh, a little bit in the past. Uh, and also Latavius Murray's gone to the Vikings. So, you know, there's a couple of those mid-tier running backs that have gone, but the big names, they're still available, Nads. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the biggest the biggest name that like was in the free agent market um, for running backs was Adrian Peterson. Um, I think he was there largely by name, though. I'm not. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I. Th- like you look at look at his production last year in particular, and what he averaged one point nine yards per carry. He's never been a good good runner out of the shotgun, and no, he's north south. Exactly, and the the league is going to a more, it's more orientated out of the gun these days than it has ever been. So, he he's definitely got his limitations, and he's thirty two years of age. And he's coming off yep. a big knee injury. So he's definitely overplayed the market. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in terms of Peterson going forward. F- quite frankly, I, I don't really care at this stage. I think uh, <laughs> if he's not going to get a be a top-tier starter in the league, I would actually rather see him bow out than see him be a shell of the player he once was. Yeah, I agree. Um, as for Jamal Charles, I, th- I really think he's done. I can't really see him getting getting a deal elsewhere. 
if we move further than just Peterson and Charles, we've got another few running backs that I want to talk about. So we'll get to Marshawn Lynch later because Raider fans all on Twitter have been just blowing up my Twitter. So I'm going to address the Marshawn Lynch stuff later on in the show, but I want to bring up Ray Rice. And this this is just sheer stupidity, but Rice has come out recently and said he's not retired and he wants to return to playing football in the NFL. Now, this is a guy who... Hasn't played since 2013. That's four years. Now, can I just can I just let you in on a little secret here? I've also not played in the NFL since 2013. <laughs> Neither have I, mate. Neither, so are we are we I. not retired either? Is that what's happened here? I haven't put my papers in. That's for sure. Uh, no. In, in all seriousness, Rice had like just over 600 yards, uh, 660 yards rushing in 2013. And the average yards per carry was just 3.1. Now, that's that's terrible numbers. And he started every game that he played. I think he played 15 games that year. Now, if you take away his longest run of the season, which was 47 yards, you take the average down to 2.8 yards per carry. And yet in this interview that he had, he implies that the only reason he's not in the league is because of his domestic violence issues. No, Ray, no. you're washed up. <laughs> no. like, look, look, if if he was if he was averaging, look, being generous, he's averaging five yards a carry. Somebody would take a punt on him, regardless of the DV issues. But when you're averaging, you know, three yards a carry on a good day, and you've got those red flags in the background, I'm sorry, but nobody's taking a chance on you. No, exactly. It's just a, it's a waste of a roster spot that would be better off served by a rookie. A hundred percent. No, I totally agree, Ray Rice. Hopefully, is done. He should be, anyway. Moving on, let's talk a bit about the defensive side of the ball. So, we've, we've mentioned Dontari Poe a few times on this show, and he was a guy who had a lot of interest, but he's ended up with a one-year deal. He's going to Atlanta for eight, $8 million per year. What are your thoughts there? Uh, look, I, I'm actually, you know, not against this signing. I think... We talked about it in the past. The one-year deal makes sense, and I think no matter where he ended up, he was only going to get a one-year deal. There's too many question marks about his, you know, his health and whether he can get back to his best. Um, and I think so that that's going to make teams less inclined to give him a long-term deal. But at the same time, I don't think he wanted a long-term deal um, because if he if he got a long-term deal, he'd be locked into this kind of sort of mid-range salary where he probably thinks at his best he deserves a lot more. So he would rather take the one-year deal, prove that he's still got it, and then get paid next year on a long-term deal. So I think it makes a lot of sense from both sides from that perspective. Um, in terms of the fit in Atlanta, I'm actually... I, I don't mind it, to be honest with you. I feel like um, they've already got some some reasonable pieces on that Falcons defense. It came together a little bit under Dan Quinn uh, towards the end of the season. Um whether he fits perfectly in their scheme, I don't know. Um, they have a lot of that sort of, you know, really speed size guys. So they're, they're not necessarily the biggest, for example, the linebackers, they're not necessarily the biggest, but they're very quick. They've, they're very good at covering sideline to sideline, back and forth across the field. So, you know, obviously Poe's not a linebacker, he's a lineman. Um, but whether he fits that sort of general mold that they're, they're sort of going for with their players there. I'm not so sure. 
Having said that, look, they were a contender last year. If he's at his best, he only makes them better. And, you know, if he flunks completely, well, then they're no worse off than they were last year. So I'm actually pretty happy with the signing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I like the signing because they'll get him to single gap in the, on the D-line. So he's going to be able to be a monster as a pass rusher. And I think that's where his, um, his skill set excuse me, his skill set is going to lie um, for Atlanta. Um, they love to rotate their defensive linemen in to keep them all fresh. It's how they do it in Seattle. It's pretty much how all the all the um, Pete Carroll-style defenses have been run um, with a front yep. four and then just keep rotating them in and out, in and out. Um, yep. I, I'm, I really I don't agree with the idea that he wanted a one-year deal because... You don't? No, not at all, because at the end of the day, NFL players want security. They want guaranteed money. They know that they they could be blown out of the league in any second because of, for whatever reason, they could blow out a knee and then their career's done. So I, I certainly think that in a perfect world, he would have got himself a long-term deal somewhere, but it's definitely shown that his past past year of production in particular, it just wasn't good enough. Teams, as a result, only wanted to give him one year, and really he went into the went into a, um, a deal with Atlanta that's going to really, in my opinion, give him the best chance to succeed. Oh, for sure. I definitely think it's uh, in terms of fit, it does give him, you know, as you say, the best the best chance to succeed. One more little nugget for you on, on this signing, Nads. Um, it actually makes a lot of sense as well from a personnel point of view. So um, obviously Thomas Dimitrioff is in, is in uh, charge of the Falcons at the moment, but He's got an assistant by the name of Scott Pioli. Now, Scott Pioli was the general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs in 2012, which was the year they drafted Poe. So there was that connection there that obviously Pioli knew him in Kansas City. He was the guy that drafted him. So um, I'm sure he had some sway in bringing him over to Atlanta. For sure. Um, The NFL is such a relationships league, and you rarely ever see like um, a player or a coach joining another team where there aren't connections that run left, right, and center. So it's certainly it's no surprise that Poe has ties to Atlanta before signing with them. Yeah, definitely. Now while we're on the topic of of D lineman, Jonathan Hankins still hasn't signed. Nats. Well, th- this is crazy. He's he's overplayed his market value. He's expected a a deal more than 10 million per year and that's that's flat out just crazy never gonna happen yeah you know i mean you compare that to um brandon williams he's not as good as brandon williams who was getting 11 million per year and um he had a down year last year but that being said he wasn't really put in the best position to succeed so his film the past like few years prior to that was really good so he had a down 2016 but even so, he's not worth anywhere near the amount that um, he was after. Like just $10 million for no. per year for more or less a glorified nose tackle. <laughs> Seems ridiculous when you put it like that, doesn't it? Exactly. He's not even going to be on the, on the, um, the field for every down. So like, trying to pay a guy that much dough, it's, just, it's no surprise that general managers have just looked the other way and said, nah, we'll wait for your price to come down, buddy. And how long do you think it'll be before that price does come down? You know, we've seen that players can be real stubborn and they, they can um, wait until July, until camp starts. Um, it, it, it won't surprise me if this takes a while. No. Um, but I, as you say, he's, he's a glorified nose tackle. So, I mean, 
he's going to have to realize that, you know, I'm, I'm going to put this in really blunt terms, but they can pretty much get any fat guy off the street and plug them in that hole. To, to a degree. Um, but at- yeah, no, yeah, to a degree, but not to the point where, you know, you have to go out and pay a guy more than $10 million a year oh, to play the role. No, I completely agree with you there. That's, it's ludicrous that he's looking for that kind of money. Um, had he been looking for that kind of money 12 months ago, I think he probably would have gotten it because his last, his previous two seasons prior to this one were like pretty bloody good. Yep, for sure. All right, let's move on. Um, Hightower, Donta Hightower, still with the Patriots. Shocking, absolutely nobody. Uh, breaking news. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's that was one of the worst free agent stories uh, of of what's happened in free agency today, especially in this class. Um, but it sort of started to see a roll-on effect with Hightower. So Hightower got signed, and now we're seeing a few other linebackers off the board. So Sean Spence and Kevin Minter were. They're two of the B-grade um, big grade linebackers in this free agency class, and they've yep. gotten one-year deals. So Spence, he signed with the Colts, and Minter has signed with the Bengals. And then we've also got Gerald Hodges. He, he was a sleeper in our free agency preview. I, I really rate Hodges. I think he's going to have a really good year if he gets, gets a chance to have some snaps. And he's meeting with Seattle soon. And then we've also seen in my um, Miami they've re-signed Kiko Alonso. Um, yep. to, he's getting like oh, something like nine point seven five million a year or something. It's yeah, it's something ridiculous like that. Something crazy. I, I think it was twenty nine million over three years with eighteen and a half guaranteed. So that's that's a lot of money, especially it's when they've over. they've already invested in Lawrence Timmons as well for two years and twelve million. So. And they've got Koamisi, and he's worth, um, I think he's on the hook for about four and a half million, thereabouts, give or take. It's a um, lot of money in your linebacking core. Exactly, but if, if you look at the past, they have quite a history of paying their linebackers. I mean, I can go, a few, I'm going to go back maybe three or four years, but do you remember Danelle Ellaby? I do remember Danelle Ellaby. Yeah, so Danelle Ellaby came off. He's with the Saints now, isn't he? I think so, but he had a monster year for Baltimore the year that he hit free agency, and he cashed in with Miami. And then Philip Wheeler as well. Philip Wheeler was a linebacker. He played for the Colts. Yep, and then he moved on to Oakland, had a great year in Oakland, and then he also moved to Miami the same year. And both similar contracts. They were getting probably between them about 12 or 13 mil per season, and that's when the cap was about 30 million less than what it is now. That's so, crazy money. Yeah, that they were. They're not afraid to invest in their linebackers. That's for sure. No, certainly looks that way. But we've still got uh, Zach Brown. He hasn't signed anywhere. Yeah, th- this is an odd one. Um, Brown had a meeting with Oakland, and it went odd. I think that's the best way that I could describe it. Um, I had. I've got one source that spoke to um, a person closely connected with the situation on Brown's side. And it was pretty much, on their, from their opinion at least, um, not a case of um, if but when he signs with the Raiders. So it was looking really good. And then for whatever reason, he got to Oakland, had a meeting with them, and um, they didn't come to an agreement. The money wasn't right. And it really doesn't, it doesn't make sense because, you know, when you go out to the meetings, more or less... 
you, you've got a, a pretty good indication of like the ballpark figure. And I reckon yep. that um, they completely tried to strong arm Oakland or something happened there and things turned sour. That being said, um, his agent has subsequently been fired. He's got a new agent now, Michael Katz. So there's been a few changes there and it doesn't Mm -hmm. surprise me that the agent has changed because obviously Brown's realized that something's, um, something's amiss with his value. Um, we, we also saw that, um, Brown interviewed in Miami. So he had a meeting with Miami left without, are they really in the market for another linebacker? (laughs) Well, exactly. That's what I thought, but it was after the um, Browns meeting finished with Miami, they re-signed Kiko Alonso only a couple hours later. So my right. gut, my gut to me suggests that that they're going with Alonso and Brown was like a stopgap. And okay, we'll see how it goes. Yep. Um, he's now off to Buffalo and he's going to be meeting with Buffalo. He used to he played with Buffalo last year, but they've got Reggie Ragland, who was their second round pick. He was injured all of last year, I think, with an ACL. And they want him to come and come and start for them this year. So it, it it's really an odd fit. I think Brown is certainly looking for the biggest payday, but I think at the end of the day, he's going to get a one-year deal and he's going to be doing this 12 months' time. Yep, I think you're spot on there. Um, I think uh, there must be something off. He, he, he was the guy I had penciled in from the start of free agency as the best inside linebacker available because I ruled out Hightower and to see him still there there's obviously something that teams don't like whether that's money whether it's character I don't know I'm not in the position to make that call um, but it's certainly going to be interesting to see how it progresses yeah I, I think it's a little bit odd um, in terms of his character um, after his his Raiders interview he posted a, a tweet on on Twitter um, saying how how pretty much happy he was to get out of out of Oakland, and it was he sort of insinuated that the money wasn't right. No. Um, it wasn't professional, um, so certainly there could be a, um, some character concerns there. If you look at his Twitter account and who he follows as well, the majority of people on there um, they're not not exactly um, it's not exactly G rated. Um, yeah, so it's definitely, it's definitely one of those things where there's probably more, more to it than meets the eye, especially just from what we can gather. All right. So next week we've got the, the March owners meetings. So this is where all 32 owners get together and they pretty much sit in a ballroom and they sort out a few of the league issues that are going on. So we've got some pretty big issues that are going to happen um, in the next in the next week. Um, Duncan, what do you think of the proposal to hire some full-time referees? Look, it's an interesting one, Nads, and I say that for, for two reasons. So there's two sides to this coin, and that is that, for those of you that, that don't know, the current league referees are obviously not full-time. They're part-time guys, um, and they a lot of them have you know, lucrative jobs of their own on the side. And I've heard whispers around social media and such that the current referees that we have aren't really keen on the idea because they don't want to give up their lucrative, you know, day-to-day jobs, should we say, to, to then go and become full-time referees when really that's more of a hobby for them. So 
on one side, you're potentially looking at, you know, losing your entire, well, not entire, but the majority of your, your current stock of referees. On the flip side of that, you take a, an example from something like soccer where, you know, all of the top soccer leagues in the world have full-time referees. And the intention of having full-time referees is that quality control, as, as much as you can get it, obviously there's always going to be human error in this sort of thing. But by having full-time referees, it's their job. They have a standard that they have to deliver and they have to be constantly working to meet that standard and preferably improve on it. So the theory is that by having full-time referees, that that's their job, that's their livelihood, there's more motivation to you know, work on, on your craft, I guess, and, and to become a better referee so that we get less of these ridiculous calls that blow up social media that will happen at least once every week. Um, from my point of view, I see the merit to both sides and I don't know what the best option is, but from my perspective, I think that full-time referees would be a really good idea. I think it's going to happen eventually. Um, you look at the league and it's worth, like it's worth billions. It's worth, um, you look at the league in terms of revenue and they generate what, about $10 billion per year. Just a lazy 10 what? bill. And, and I'm pretty sure it's more than that. I've been very conservative in the number. It's just off the top of my head. And, you know, we shouldn't have part-time guys like, on the field making decisions which are potentially, they're going to be game-changing. Not to mention just game-changing in terms of the on-field result, but they're going to have implications on the betting. Yep. They're going to have imp- implications to um, what goes on like post-game. Yep. Um it's going to affect certain certain media headlines, and and, and all because we we don't want to, or the NFL doesn't want to shill out of a couple million bucks um, to employ employ full time refs. It, it just doesn't make sense in in this day and age um, to have part time refs in a multi billion dollar industry. No, I totally agree. And as I said, my my vote is firmly for full time referees. Um, I don't, I don't see any merit not to having them. And as you say, with the money the NFL's got, I'm sure they could be paid lucrative enough salaries to make it worthwhile. I'll just also add, um, you know how you can challenge the, you can challenge certain plays and then it goes, goes under the hood yep. and they, they do the review. Um, what, what's your view there? Do you think that, um, the referees on the field should should be the ones making that decision under the hood? Or do you like the idea that we sort of see in cricket how they go to the third umpire and they get the um, get the video footage that way from someone who's a little impartial and hasn't hasn't been feeling the effects, so to speak, of the, the crowd and, and the, the atmosphere? I'm firmly in the, the cricket camp of, of using a third umpire. I mean, it, it can't be that hard to have a guy in New York or wherever you want to base him that just sits in front of a TV and watches it and gets called on when he needs to. Um, you know, you don't know what's going on in the field. As you say, it's, it's quite, it's, it's human nature for the referees to get influenced by the crowd, by the players. Maybe they've had some stuff said to them by the coaches. You don't, you don't know. And, and it's, it's human nature that you're going to factor all that in when you're making a, what, what could be a very 50, 50 call that could go either way. I think having an impartial guy to look at it uh, is a much better option. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I was on the field 
um, for a game a couple of years ago back in 2011 and the amount of chit chat that goes on between the coaches and the refs really is crazy they really are in the in the referee's ear every chance that they can get and if it's not the referee uh, it's the the sideline judge it's another guy um, it, it really is it, it's a, a madhouse out there it's a real rat race and the referees have enough on their plate already and then trying to trying to sort out the video review. I really think it, it would be a lot more beneficial if they just go upstairs 100% of the time um, as opposed to getting under the hood every now and then. I, I agree. Um, I just think, you know, it doesn't matter what sport you're playing, and it's been f- true for me my entire life, and I'm sure it's true in the NFL, but there's there's no good that comes from arguing with the referee. Absolutely nothing. The, the only thing it does is annoy them and make the future decisions less likely to go your way. Now, I understand at the professional level, you've got a lot riding on the game. It's easy to get emotional. It's easy to have a crack at the refs, get in there, chit-chat, as you say, whatever. So why don't we take that risk away from you know, potentially affecting the outcome by having a third, a third party? Exactly. And even in the short term, a referee can just flag you and you get 15 yards against you. Yep. So it's it's a no win situation. Um, it, it's one of those where they're just looking to vent. Yep. All right, Nads. Let's move on. There's also been talk of some rule changes that are going to be discussed at these owners meetings, and the biggest of those is to do with overtime. So there's a proposed discussion that uh, overtime will be reduced from 15 minutes to 10 minutes uh, because teams who play in overtime obviously that's extra time they spend on the field. It's extra time that they're you know, battling in the trenches, lots of risk of injury. So there's there's the theory that they have a competitive disadvantage for the following week, particularly if they've got a short week playing on a Thursday night. What are your thoughts, Nads? I think it's absurd that they're coming up with this potential rule. I, for one, would vote it down with a with a massive sledgehammer. You know, this is this is ridiculous. The idea that we should be um, changing the overtime rule from 15 minutes to 10. Well, for starters, it's only going to affect about 26% of games. So instead of, um, we saw roughly in the last 12 months, 26% of games finished in that final five minutes of overtime. So for the reality is that roughly three quarters of games that go to overtime aren't going to be affected by this. So and that's, the idea that's of three quarters of games that actually go to overtime. So that's, exactly. that's an even smaller so, percentage when you think about it. Precisely. So the idea that there's going to be this competitive disadvantage, well, bad luck. You know, um, we want to we want a proper result. We don't want to have this um, mini-me rubbish where we play a few minutes and, oh, if no one scores, okay, big deal. No, play a full quarter. Make sure it, um, it works properly. The, the system has worked for a long time. I don't see the reason why they need to change the system now. Um I think that you could put a few tweaks in. Um, I'm not really sure. I personally agree with the idea that a touchdown um, wins the game regardless and the other team doesn't get a chance. I was going to bring I, I this would like up. The, I would like the other team to be able to have a chance to to match it. And I think that's where we sort of see the college the college game. It's um, They have a better, better finger on the pulse in terms of that because... With the college game, you see them start on the on the twenty five yard line, and it's pretty much you're already in the red zone, um, and the other team gets a chance to match the yep. match the score. Um, would you rather go to that system 
than what we currently have in place? I, I would, and there's two reasons for that. Well, actually three reasons. First and foremost, I feel like the current system, depending on the team, you're essentially winning or losing the game on a coin toss, which is not the purpose of overtime. So I'm going to take my Colts as an example. We last year had the statistically one of the worst defenses in just about every category of defense you can think of. But you compare that with our offense that was actually quite good. So if we got to overtime in a game and we lost the coin toss, the odds of us stopping anybody on defense are like minimal at best. So we never got to use the strength we had on our team, which was our offense. Um, And so essentially we're getting to overtime and we're losing on a coin toss because we didn't call heads or whatever. So that's the first reason I don't like it. The second reason... Uh, a little bit different it's it's I feel like if you if you start on the 25 yard line uh, and and just you know go for the end zone over and over and over again it's a little bit more exciting Um, I just find that you know as a fan you're constantly on the edge of your seat because at any moment they could score if they're at the 20 yard line at the start of overtime you're like well you know there's still a long way to go here they're probably not going to score on this play but if they're starting from the 25-yard line, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And so you're constantly, you know, excited that they're going to get there. It, it makes, I guess, it adds another dimension um, to overtime. Uh, so that's a big reason. Yeah, I th- I personally um, wouldn't mind the idea. Like, I think the overtime concept is great in college. What... I think could be tweaked for the NFL would be instead of starting on the 25, um, I think it would be interesting to start at midfield. Yeah, I was going to say that. That's actually a pretty good alteration to that idea. Yeah, because then it brings the long field goals into play. Yep. And um, it, you can you can throw it around tactically a bit there, a bit more. It allows you to, to play to the strengths of your team again. So like, if you've got a good kicker who can slot them from 60 yards... Or, or 50 yards, over 50 yards consistently, that's not really an advantage you have if you're starting at the 25-yard line. So I feel like overtime should be designed to get you a result, but at the same time, it shouldn't disadvantage anybody for having a particular strength or weakness. Certainly not. Now let's go to the last point that I want to I wanna bring up regarding these upcoming owners' meetings, and it's going to be pretty much the, the most talked about thing at these owners' meetings. So the Raiders are are likely going to have a relocation vote. So Joe Arrigo, um, he's on Twitter, and he's at Joe Arrigo, and he broke the news um, a few days ago that the owner's vote on the Raiders' application to relocate to Las Vegas will be done on Monday, the 27th of March, um, Phoenix time. So that's going to be Tuesday, the 28th, Australian time. And by all indications, if, if it does indeed get to a vote, which pretty much every single media um, person worth their salt is saying it. I mean, um, Peter King came out this morning with a pretty um, pretty good um, article in support support of the relocation. Um, Jason Lacanfora, who's been a um, almost a, a Las Vegas denier, I guess you could say. He's been very sceptical. He even um, published um, barely six hours ago. He said, look... Um, I've been a real skeptic on it. I'm convinced this is happening now based on um, what I've been speaking to. Um, all indications that if if and when it goes to a vote, 
um, on Monday, Tuesday Australian time, it's going to receive approval. What are your thoughts? Look, we covered this in, in quite a lot of detail with our interview with Scott, uh, episode three, I think it was now. Um, I personally don't obviously don't have as much knowledge of this issue as you do. You're a lot closer to the pulse. Um, but at this point in time, I personally, from what I've read and what I've seen, I'd be surprised if the relocation doesn't go ahead. Um, and all things considered, I think it'll actually be a really good move for football and also for the Raiders. Yeah, well, I'm going to have a lot more thoughts on it um, later. Uh, I really, I just want the vote to happen, and then I'll pretty much be able to come up with a more, a more concise um, way of putting it. Um, really, in terms of what's going on with the relocation, Albert Breer um, today he recently tweeted, um, taking from it was also published in Peter King's column using Breer as a source. The, the relocation fee is going to be between 325 and 375 million dollars so they take that out of out of the revenues that are generated by the stadium it's usually paid over 10 years and it's only you only have to start paying that off once the stadium opens so it's not really a burden um, if you compare it to um, the relocation fee paid by the Rams and the Chargers, they're paying $650 million over 10 years. That's that's with interest. Um, so it was $550 million. They're obviously they're paying it over a 10-year period. Um, so it's going to be um, the extra $100 million on, on top of that. But it's a lot less um, than um, what LA is, that's for sure. Definitely. All systems seem to be full go right now, so certainly on the face of it, I'd be very surprised if the Raiders um, don't receive um, approval to go to Las Vegas. And as such, we're currently planning one hell of a relocation special. Um, we're going to have a massive show next week, and it's going to be dedicated entirely to this um, to this saga, provided that the Raiders um, receive relocation. We're going to have a few guest interviews. They're going to be on for the whole show. Um, we'll, we'll release the names of those in due time, but I promise you that they're, they're going to be the best, um, best and most knowledgeable sources that you can possibly get um, regarding the Raiders' relocation to Las Vegas. You're not going to find anyone that's more knowledgeable than the people that we've lined up, and we're very excited to interview them. Oh, for sure. It's going to be huge. Everybody, make sure you follow us on social media and you'll get all the insight as to when that episode is going to be uploaded. Dunk, mate, I know you've been in the film room watching hours and hours of footage the last week. We're covering safeties and quarterbacks in the draft for this episode. Let's start off with the safeties. You've got five of your top ones. Let's start with number five. Who have you got listed? Yeah, so number five is an interesting evaluation. He's probably one of the, I'm going to say one of, if not the hardest prospect I've had to evaluate so far. Uh, And that's Jabril Peppers. So he's a redshirt sophomore out of Michigan. And the reason that he's so hard to evaluate is because he doesn't really have an out-and-out role. And I say that because Michigan used him in just about every position on the field. He played safety, he played linebacker, he played snaps on offense, he played special teams. It's really hard, you know, to pick exactly what his role is. Now, having said that, after having looked at the film and and looked at the player, 
I think he's most suited to playing strong safety, and so that's why I've got him in the safety category. Um, the things I like about him is obviously he's an athlete. To be able to play all of those different roles, you have to have outstanding athleticism. There's, you know, it goes without saying. So he ran a four four six forty at the combine with a thirty five and a half inch vert and a hundred and twenty eight inch broad jump. So plenty of explosiveness, plenty of speed. Um, look, he's got great agility in pass coverage, so that's another reason to throw him in the safety category. Um, but the things I really like, he's a great blitzer, and he's really like ferocious in the way that he hits, particularly for somebody his size. Um, so I love those parts about his game. He offers you a few little unique things. As I said, he's great on special teams, and he can play on offense as well. So there's uh, a bit of versatility there for whoever drafts him. Obviously, there are, there are going to be some negatives as well. Um, so his size, a little bit that, that in-betweener role, um, and he relies very heavily on his quickness to really hit the run. So he doesn't have as great anticipation and ability to diagnose where he needs to go, and he really relies on his quickness and his burst to hit the gaps. Um, his size also hurts him a little bit and then he struggles to get off of blocks. So when you're trying to play against the run, if you can't get, you know, stack and shed the block, um, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to really get in there and, and, you know, break up plays. Um, in terms of coverage, he's definitely more a strong safety guy. If you play him deep center as, as a free safety, he's kind of just a guy. Um, and, and that's really, you know, it's reflected in his stats. So over his entire college career, he's only had one interception and 10 passes defended. Um, so that kind of, you know, gives you a bit of an insight into the type of player he is. But look, you're certainly drafting him for his athleticism, if nothing else. Now, it's interesting. He's the number one, number one safety on Mike Mayock's latest rankings. Um, they were released about 24 hours ago. Um, also... I want to bring up the one pick that he's had because it, I saw on Twitter today like, a number of the top safeties that have been taken in the last 10, 15 years. And you look at a guy like Eric Berry. Eric Berry had 14 picks in college. Ed Reed had something ridiculous. He had more than 20. I think it was 21. A lot of these top safeties had at least, at least five as a bare minimum and the better ones were hitting double digits. And that was regardless of if they played free or strong. Um, we've got a guy like Peppers. He's only got the one. Um, I, I'm concerned. I'm not sure where he fits in a scheme. I do wonder if you could probably try to even play him as that that linebacker Dion Buchanan type type role. I think that's that's probably where I'd I'd be playing him. But he's one that's um, certainly gonna. Um, he's going to get defensive coordinators having to be a little bit more creative than um, normal in terms of how they're going to use him. Definitely. And I think you've, you've pretty well hit the nail on the head on why he's such a tough evaluation is that he doesn't have a complete skill set or athletic makeup to fit one specific position. He's got lots of little bits of lots of different roles. And so it's really hard as an evaluator to try and figure out, you know, where he should go. It's interesting that you say Mike Mayo has him number one because I've got him nowhere near number one. On this list, number one and two are so far ahead of the rest that it's not funny. Um, so I, I don't think he comes anywhere near them, but we'll get to them shortly. Yeah, I th- you talk about like, the idea of how he's got a lot of like little good traits and 
I really do wonder if it's a case of jack of all trades, master of none. And I think so. Yes. I think look, I think part of that is to do with how Michigan used him. I feel like he never really got the opportunity to sort of, you know, work on a particular craft and really make it his own, I guess. Really get exposed to all the nuances of playing one particular position because he was constantly being bounced around to do all sorts of different things. And so he never really got the time to devote to working on that one particular area. Um, and so I think that's a factor in, in why we've seen such difficulty in evaluating him. Yeah, true. I think we can both agree, though, even though he's a Michigan Michigan Wolverine and he played both sides of the, of the field, he's definitely no Charles Woodson. No, not, not even in the same conversation. <laughs> Although having said that, I have seen some people comparing him to him and I'm like, what, why? No. On what basis? No, simply because they both played for, for the Wolverines uh, and they played both sides of the field. But no, he's, he's not even in Seawood's like, league. He couldn't carry ridiculous. the job strap. No, not even close. Okay, let's move on to number four. So who have you got there? Number four is an interesting one. Obi Melafonwu. I love his name. Great name. Uh, he's a senior That's out a of Connecticut. Name. His stock has risen significantly ever since the senior bowl. And of late, it's it's grown even higher. And the reason for that is that the combine nads, he basically jumped out the gym. He was just insanely athletic. So this is a guy, he's playing safety. He's six foot four, 224 pounds. So he's a big dude. But get this, he runs a 4440. That's elite speed. He has a 44-inch vertical. Just to put that in perspective, the rest of the guys on my list, the next highest was Jabril Peppers with 35 and a half. So he's got almost 10 inches of vert on top of his five inches of extra height. And he's got a 141-inch broad jump. Insane numbers at the combine, that's absolutely insane. So this is a guy that comes with absolutely elite size, speed, power, explosiveness, just an incredible athlete. Now... You get the luxury of then coupling that with the fact that he was a four-year starter for Connecticut. Um, he usually plays as a high safety, but he does drop down occasionally. And he's even played some outside corner. He started um, his college career as a corner. So he's got really good coverage. Well, he's got decent coverage skills from playing as a corner. Um, his height means that he's got that really nice long stride. So when he hits top speed, he closes distance really quickly. Um Against the run, he's a solid contributor. He takes really good angles to the ball carrier. Um, he's he's not one of those guys that when he you know gets to the guy, he just dives straight in. He gets his balance right and he wraps up well. Um, and the other thing that you've got to love about this guy is that his size means he can cover any tight end in the league, and he he can match up with the big slot guys that you know we're seeing a lot more of nowadays. Those those two tight end sets where. All of a sudden, you need to be able to throw a DB to, to cover one of them. So when you've got a guy 6'4", 224 with 4440 speed, like he can cover anybody. Yeah, it's interesting. He's got like, he's going to look great coming off the bus. There is no doubt about that. And the biggest reason you'd want to draft him is specifically for the coverage on those bigger guys. Um, you mentioned the idea of like covering in the slot. And what we're seeing these days is tight ends, they're coming out and they're splitting out in the slot these days. So you've got a guy like Gronkowski who's just a, a monster and and he's getting lined up on like a piss week mini corner. And then make it, being made to run corner routes and making them look silly. Exactly. It's just not fair. 
No, it's it's really not. And so when you've got a guy like Melifonu on your field, it's just an absolute luxury to be able to just bounce him over to cover the tight end and you're happy as Larry. Now, having said that, there's always some negatives, of course. So if we look at some of the cons, he's you know a little bit lacking in terms of his instincts. Um, so you know in in coverage breaking on the ball etc he struggles a little bit at times but he makes up for it with his speed the other thing that you see is that uh obviously due to his size he's got quite long legs and sometimes he has issues with his feet getting them set right getting you know in and out of of turns and that sort of thing because he's got such long legs that he's kind of a little bit i'm going to use the word lanky um so that's you know obviously a little bit of a flag and then um occasionally has a little bit of difficulty recognizing and diagnosing play action and so he can get undone occasionally with that as well having said that i still think he's a first round prospect yeah good call good call let's go to number three i I really like this guy buddha baker buddha baker he's my number three now so we're gonna go from six foot four oversized safety to five foot ten undersized safety and that, Nads, is, is really the biggest knock I've got on Buddha Baker is his size. So he's 5'10", 195 pounds. So he's a lot smaller than these other guys. But look, he's still around a 4'4", 540. So he's got the speed. He's got a 32 and a half inch vert, decent explosiveness. But the thing I love about him, he's got a huge heart. For a guy with his size, he plays like a linebacker. It's, it's really great to watch. He's got really, really good instincts. As we said, great speed. He can, uh, he's got the agility to match that, so he can cover man-to-man. He's very good against the run and blitzing, um, and he's very good underneath. He's also quite a physical guy, which obviously, um, you know, rarely do you associate smaller guys with that real physical presence, but he's able to deliver it as well. Um, he's very reliable in space. He's great on special teams. You can play him as a strong guy. You can play him center field. It really doesn't matter. And on top of all of that, he's just got a great character. He's, he's one of those guys you really want to have in your locker room. If he was the prototypical safety size, you know, that six foot one, 210 pounds, he's a top 10 pick in my mind. But because he's a little bit undersized, he's going to get knocked down. Having said that, he's still first round by a mile. Um, as I said, the only knocks I've really got on him are his size. And that obviously, as we said, that leads to issues. He's, he's not as good covering those tight ends in the slot. He struggles taking down bigger running backs and that sort of thing, which is obviously to be expected. So, you know, you're going to have to be creative a little bit in how you use him as a defensive coordinator. And the only other issue that he's got is that he, he doesn't have the best hands. You know, you always hear the adage that DBs are just bad wide receivers because they didn't have the hands to play on offense. Um, and he kind of, you know... He embodies that a little bit. He doesn't have the best hand, so you don't see him making many big play, you know, picks going the other way, etc. He's much more of a uh, pass defense guy than a turnover generator. He reminds me a lot of Tyron Matthew crossed with L. Thomas. Yep, um, I think that's pretty pretty good. Pretty yeah, good I think I think he's going to make an absolute like beast of a free safety. But at the same time, I certainly think that um, in certain nickel packages. Um, depending on who's in the slot, um, I can certainly see him running around like the honey badger does, just making plays left, right, and center. Yep, I agree with you. Should we move on to my number two? Yeah, go for it, champ. Now, obviously, I've, I've harped on pretty highly about Obi Melifondo and Buddha Baker and how I think they're both first-round picks. 
These two guys at number two and number one, and I'm going to say already, it was very hard for me to split them. Um, these two are far and away the best two safeties in this draft. Now, I have them both as top 10 picks, and I'd almost go so far as to say with some of the other stuff that we've seen going on, they're top five guys, um, especially the guy I've got at number one. But number two, I've got Malik Hooker out of Ohio State. So he's a sophomore. He's 6'1", 206 pounds. He didn't work out at the combine, so I can't give you his combine stats, unfortunately. But you talk about Earl Thomas before. This guy is basically Earl Thomas 2.0. He's in that category of Earl Thomas, Eric Berry, Ed Reed, all those great free safety guys that are just ball hawks. That's Malik Hooker to a T. And the thing that, that gives him that ability is his range. So his ability to get sideline to sideline from hash to hash um, it's incredible. His his speed is just elite, and it, it goes with fluidity and great ball skills. Very rarely do you find a free safety that has all three of those. Often they'll have two, but Malik Hooker has all three. On top of that, he has fantastic instincts. There's one play in particular I remembered watching on film where he, he basically... I can't even remember who he was playing against, but he's basically... Uh, completely diagnosed exactly what was going to happen on the play. He knew who was uh, uh, he knew the the outside linebacker of his defense that was blitzing and where the pressure was coming from. He recognized the hot read, which was the tight end on that side of the field. He's undercut the route entirely before the ball has even left the quarterback's hands. He's in position for where it's going to go. Unfortunately, it got battered down by a lineman at the line of scrimmage. But if that ball actually gets through, that's a pick six going the other way. And that pretty much summed up exactly what Malik Hooker is about. He's that incredible instincts, incredible speed, and ability to judge and diagnose what's going to happen and get to the ball. You stick that guy in center field like Seattle, like L. Thomas, make him play center field in a cover three, he's going to be elite, absolutely elite. Now, obviously... There are a few concerns, but they're, look, they're few and far between. The biggest one is that he only started one season at Ohio State. Okay, so there's not a lot of, you know, statistics, there's not a lot of film on the guy. What I can tell you is that in his freshman year on, on Ohio State's practice squad, he had 40 interceptions. 40. That is an insane number of picks. Even on a practice squad where, you know, maybe the quarterback throws it around a little bit more, that's still a huge number, which just goes to show the luxuries that Ohio State have had in that secondary, but also just how good Malik Hooker actually is. On top of that, obviously I've, I've raved on about how good he is in pass coverage, but he does struggle a little bit against the run. He's not as instinctive. He tends to take poor angles at times, and he's got that slow first step getting downhill after the ball carrier. And uh, couple that with a tackling technique that needs a little bit of work. And there are certainly a few issues that need to be refined. Having said all that, I'd take him in the top five. I'd probably take him fifth overall, I think. Um, But just an elite guy. If you want to run cover three where you need that center fielder, he's your guy, without a doubt, every day of the week. Yeah, look, you've nailed it down. You hit it on the tee. Uh, let's go on to number one. So there's no real secret about who it is. You're not throwing anyone out of left field, nah, are you? <laughs> nah. Number one is Jamal Adams out of LSU. And the reason that I love him is it's just as much the intangibles as it is his actual physical play. Um, so first of all, he comes from 
a great NFL pedigree. His dad was a first round draft pick and a running back for the a Super Bowl winning running back for the New York Giants. Um, so he's got the pedigree there. But the bit I love about Jamal Adams, he is a true alpha guy. He is that you know that huge leader on the offense in the uh, sorry on the defense in the locker room. He's that tone setter. He is the the Ray Lewis equivalent. He's that guy that you just want to have on your team, regardless of anything else. He comes out, he sets the tone from start to finish. He says the right things, but he backs it up as well. So if we look at his actual play, he's got great instincts and a huge football IQ. That's what I'm going to start with. So we know the guy, you know, great character, great leader, but he's also got the footballing brain to go with it. Now, he's a strong safety, so he's very, very different to Malik Hooker. He's he's definitely the box safety kind of guy. Um, he's particularly explosive in off-man coverage. He's, he's good there, and he's got great feet to really break down on those underneath routes and, and um, to break those up. Um, he's got really, really fluid hips, which you don't normally see with a box safety, which means that he can play single high or nickel in the slot, but obviously not his preferred option, but he can do it. Um, he doesn't have elite speed, but he's got enough speed to get sideline to hash or center field to the sorry hash to hash or center field to the sideline. He's got enough speed to do it, and that's all you need to be able to do in the NFL. His tackling his tackling technique is absolutely textbook. It's it's what you want when you want to teach kids how to tackle. He takes great angles. He's got fantastic pursuit, um, and he's got great ability to sort of reset and align and just trust his instincts and his mechanics. That you know, when a receiver's trying to make a move, he's just waiting for the move to come. He doesn't overcommit one way or the other. And on top of that, he offers you something on special teams as well. So for me, he just ticks so many boxes. In terms of Knox, obviously some teams are going to look down a little bit on the fact that he doesn't have that elite speed. But as I said, he's more than fast enough. He ran a four five six forty, so he's not slow. Um, I do think that occasionally he's a little bit too passive. Um, as I said, he he has those mechanics for you know sort of backpedaling and and not overcommitting. But sometimes he goes too far the other way and is too passive and gives the ball carrier too much space to make those moves. Um, and he can be uh, a little bit, I guess, uh, when he's in coverage, he can struggle a little bit in terms of his technique and, and um, really rotating his hips, particularly against things like double moves and that sort of thing. Um, and the only other critique I've got of him is that he's more than happy to be the force player, which means... He's, he's the guy that's happy to sort of sit on the outside and ride a block but force, you know, the runner back inside than that guy that really wants to, you know, I want to make that play. I want to get this running back. I'm going to shed this block and get to him. He's more than happy to be the force guy. And I really think he would benefit from being a little bit less passive and really getting stuck in and trying to make that play. But other than that, look, the guy is just an absolute beast and he should go... He'll definitely go in the first round. He should go in the top five. Yeah, I'm not even sure that you can say that being a force player is a bad thing, especially, oh, it's if, not. It's by, especially if it's by design. Um, you know, like, you don't want him over-committing, over-pursuing, and then all of a sudden, because he's out of his gap, um, they're able to pop it out to the outside and then break it for a big one. So I, I personally don't really have an issue with him being the force guy every now and then. Um, you did mention the elite um, 
he doesn't have the elite speed, but at the same time, his instincts make up for it. So he doesn't play slow on tape. So no. I'm not concerned about that one bit. No. Um, this is a guy who has all the pedigree. He's the alpha dog that you mentioned. He's a true elite safety, and he's gonna he's gonna be in the league for a long time. I would expect. I totally agree with that. All right, well, that wraps up the safety preview of the draft. Let's move on to the other side of the ball, the most important position of them all, the quarterbacks. Dunk, what do you got there? You say it's the most important position of them all, and I totally agree with you, Nads. It's also the worst position in this draft class by an absolute mile. And I'm going to say I didn't enjoy these evaluations because, to me, there is no first-round talent in this class. There's a couple of guys who are sort of, you know, fringe first rounders, early second rounders, maybe, but there's not a single one that I got excited about, and that if I was a team that needed a quarterback, would need on, would would want on my roster. So, I'm not going to go into as much detail with these guys because I don't see the merit to it. But I'll run through them fairly quickly before I get into my top five. I do want to talk quickly about Pat Mahomes. So he's a junior out of Texas Tech. And if you follow the draft coverage at all, you'll see that a lot of analysts have him in their top fives. And he doesn't feature in mine. And the reason for that is, mechanically, I don't think he's a good quarterback. In his throwing motion and the way he goes about it, I'm not going to argue with you know, his production at Texas Tech or anything like that, or you know his, his football IQ, things of that nature. Purely on mechanics, I don't like what I saw. So the way he throws under no pressure in the pocket. His front foot goes outside his body. He's got no hip rotation and he kind of just rifles it sidearm style and relies purely on his shoulder strength to rip the ball out and get it, you know, in the right spot at the right time. Now to me as a as a quarterbacking purist, I just kind of cringe every time I see that and it just pains me and I don't think it'll translate well to the next level. Um, look, he could put in some a, a lot of work with some good coaches and maybe fix some things, but we've seen from guys like Blake Bortles just how much you can struggle if your mechanics aren't sound, um, and that's the real reason that I'm discounting him from my top five. I, I just want to add in there regarding Mahomes, I reckon you, Duncan, have better better mechanics than um, than Mahomes does, and uh, uh, th- that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing because like Dunk, he can throw a ball. Um, if you've ever ever gone out in the park with Dunk, he can he can sling at 50, 60 yards, no problem, and like land it on a dime with a tight spiral. So, look, if only you were an American, mate, because um, it's too bad that you're an Aussie, because if you were an American, I reckon you'd be playing college football at the very least. Uh, I'd like to think so, but unfortunately I'm not. I'm here, and that's why I'm doing this podcast instead, but that's okay, Nads. I'm all right with that. Let's uh, let's get moving through my top five, though. We've still got plenty to get through in this episode, so I'm just going to run through these names very quickly. Uh, at five, I've got Davis Webb. He's a senior out of California. At four, I've got Brad Kaya. He's a junior out of Miami. And I'm not really going to touch on those guys at all, to be honest with you, because neither of them are going to feature anywhere near the top two, three rounds. Um, they're going to be backups at best, and you might see them bounce around the league a bit in the future, but... Their names to watch out for. Um, but the top three, you probably will see. So at three, I've got Deshaun Kaiser out of Notre Dame. 
And he's an interesting evaluation because if you look at the tape from his season in 2015, he's got the best tape of this entire bunch. But if you compare that to his tape from 2016, he looks a shadow of himself. And so you're a little bit kind of like, what's going on here? Normally you see like, you know, your, your progression upwards with the more experience you have. But Kaiser's 2015 was definitely a lot better than his 2016. Having said that, he's got a big arm. He can make all the throws. He's got a tight spiral, um, reasonable accuracy. And the bit that I really love, he's happy to hang in the pocket and take a hit if it means getting the ball out and getting that completion. Um, in terms of negatives, look, he struggles a little bit to get off his primary read, so he can get stuck there too long. Um, I almost... He's, he's got in that, that Pat Mahomes category, but nowhere near as bad. He's got a few little mechanical issues, which often um, they, they couple with an over-reliance over on the strength of his arm to make throws. Um, and that, that combo leads to incompletions quite often. Um, he's not great in terms of anticipation. And he's got a horrible trait, which it's very hard to do, but all of the best quarterbacks are, at, are, are great at it. And that is keeping your eyes downfield when you feel pressure in the pocket. So as soon as he feels pressure in the pocket, he has a tendency to take his eyes off downfield and, and focus on the pocket. And uh, that's that's not a great characteristic when you're moving up into the NFL because you're going to have pressure in the pocket. It's it's just like guaranteed. No, you've summed it up really well there. Um, the big issue for me is that he didn't progress from 2015 to 2016. Um, we see so many quarterbacks, they look like they're going to be the next big thing. We saw it with Matt Barkley, for instance. He was a surefire first-round pick um, going into his um, final year with USC, had a very subpar year, gets drafted in the fourth round, yep. um, is more or less an irrelevant quarterback in the league now. Correct. Um, we, ju- we just see it so often. So let's go to number two. Yeah, the national champion, Nads. Deshaun Watson out of Clemson. Um, look, he's he's a very raw quarterback is how I'm going to describe him. If you're drafting Deshaun Watson, you're drafting Deshaun Watson the guy, not Deshaun Watson the quarterback. So character-wise, he's a proven winner on the biggest stages he can have played on in his career. Um, he's a great leader, and he's very clutch in, in you know important situations. And you can't teach that sort of stuff. So they're big ticks on Deshaun Watson. Um He's got good mobility, good mobility in the pocket. He's got a very compact release, which leads to a tight spiral. Um, and he has the ability to make plays with his feet. The problem is that he's very, very raw. So he's got a compact release, but mechanically he's very raw. He's not great on the deep ball. Um, and he, he turn, tends to rush throws a little bit. The bit that I don't like is that he often, I describe it as shooting from the hip in that, he often gets baited into making bad throws. He struggles to recognize coverage because he just rips the ball out there as soon as he can without fully diagnosing what's going on. And there's a fine line between holding onto the ball too long and getting it out too early. Deshaun Watson definitely leaves on the, leads on the too early side, um, and that leads to a lot of interceptions which he had over his college career. Having said that, as I said, you're drafting Deshaun Watson the guy, not Deshaun Watson the quarterback. And I think if you do with the right coaching and the right system, he could have a good career. But he's definitely not a guy, in my opinion, he's not a guy that's going to come in and you know take over your franchise and carry them on his back from day one. No, definitely not. Um, one thing I, I've seen, I think Ben Albright 
um, tweeted it out. He he was mentioning um, arm velocity, um, and that got measured at the combine. And if you look at um, you take a few miles off off the ball, and in a twenty yard twenty yard window, that can be like the difference between a corner like being able to sit on the route or the corner not being able to make the play. And I think Watson had one of the lowest um, velocities out there. And I think that's a big red flag um, personally. Yeah. Well, if you, tr- if you tried to compare him to a, to a, maybe a cu- an NFL quarterback from the last decade or so, would you have any names that you'd be able to pop up? Yeah, look, I don't have a perfect comparison. But I've seen comparisons thrown around, and there was one that I liked, sort of, that I saw him compared to Marcus Mariota. But to me, he's like a poor man's Marcus Mariota from an actual throwing point of view. From you know, mechanically as a quarterback, he's a poor man's Marcus Mariota. But I think, as I said, his intangibles are off the charts. So I'd say he's worth the risk. I don't think he should go in the first round, but I think he may still fit in there somewhere. But he'll I go. think he'll he'll be a first rounder, mate. There are too many teams that just get so happy on a on a quarterback, know, and um, they just they get trigger happy. This is not they, not the year to do it. They they want the fifth round, uh, not the fifth round, the fifth year option on the contract as well. So that makes them. Um, they they tend to get overdrafted. We see guys. I mean, Christian Ponder, he was a top fifteen pick. Jake Locker was a first round pick. Um, I will say, I was terrible. I did actually have Watson number one on my list until I saw his pro day. Um, and, you know, throwing against air, he just looked off. You know, passes are bobbling occasionally. He's throwing behind receivers. He's a little bit slow. They're not getting there on time. So the receivers, you know, on some of these out routes, the receiver's already at the boundary line and the ball's in the air still. So, you know, they're having to stop and then try and keep their momentum from going out of bounds when really you want them... You know, against air, you want the ball out. They're making the catch, and then they're turning upfield and running it up the sideline. So, after seeing his pro day, I knocked him down to second. Um, yeah, I think I've I've pretty much summed up what I think of Deshaun. Mate, you definitely have. Let's go to number one now. I want to get his name right. It's uh, not Mitch Mitchell Trubisky. Mitchell Trubisky. It was Mitch for a long time, and then it came out at the combine that his name is actually Mitchell Trubisky. And that's what he wants to go as. So he's a redshirt junior out of North Carolina. And to me, he is the most NFL ready out of all of these guys. He's got great size. He's 6'2", 222. Um, but he's got four six seven speed, which is decent. Um, he's very good in the pocket. He's happy to slide around. He doesn't drop his eyes, as we talked about a little bit um, with uh, Deshaun Kaiser. Um, but he's got very crisp and efficient delivery. He gets through his progressions very quickly. He's got a really nice throwing motion. And he's a very tough and competitive guy by all accounts at the uh, at the combine. He interviewed very well. Um, scouts liked what they saw of him. He can make all the throws that you need to make as a quarterback. And that speed on the back end, it, it, it lets him, you know, he can get away from blitzes with that little bit of speed to buy himself just enough time, you know, to get the ball out of his hands. Um I see him going in the first round. Again, in a a normal draft, is he a first-round talent? Uh, Maybe on a good day, but I'm really not sure. And that stems from the fact that he's only had one year as a starter. So there's really not a great deal you can evaluate uh, in terms of longevity and and, and consistency and keeping it up 
um, for long periods of time. The other concern, and it's not as big of a concern as it was back in the day, but he's had very minimal experience taking snaps under center. So I've got a stat for you, Nads. In his college career, only one season, obviously, 98% of the snaps that he took were from the shotgun. 98%. 98%. So very, very, very rarely was he under center. So he's going to have to learn the footwork of playing under center a lot better. Um, and it is very different. So it's going to take him a little bit of time um, to get used to. The other thing that is that I noticed, and, and I've seen a lot of scouts agree with this in their reports, is that um, the system that he was in, it kind of, it helped him a little bit. You know, they, they ran a spread offense. They ran lots of run pass options so they really tried to make it you know as simple and as easy for him that he didn't have to you know make those really complex diagnosed decisions that he's going to see a lot of in the nfl when you've got really complex defensive looks being thrown at him that he's then got to diagnose and figure out what he's doing before the snap so that was a little bit of a concern but the biggest thing for me is that i just haven't seen enough you know one year is it's not enough for me to make a fully informed call as to to what sort of pro he's going to be having said that out of all of them he's certainly got the best tape for this year and for my preference on what i'm looking for in a quarterback he's the closest to it so he's my number one yeah the the biggest issue is you've only seen one year of him and like we've we've mentioned like you've got a lot of one one year quarterback wonders that they come back for another year and then they're flops and yep um he's definitely He's backing himself. He's gone into the draft. He's going to be a... I won't be surprised if he goes in the top 10 simply because one team falls in love with him or simply just get get trigger happy and they think, oh, geez, we need that quarterback. Let's, let's go get him before anyone else does. Um, it's not a good cast, though. No, We've it's seen really a lot not. better. No. You know, that about wraps it up for the draft preview for this episode, Nads. Next week, we're going to go man-on-man. Man. We're going to go wide receivers and DBs. So we're going to look at uh, those catching the ball and those trying to stop them. I like the idea, mate. Let's let's move on. It's time for time for our weekly mailbag. Hashtag AskNads. All right, Nad, so let's just dive straight back into this. It's good to have this segment back. We didn't have it last week, but we've got it back this week. There's plenty of questions coming in, so let's dive straight in. The first question doesn't come from just one person. It comes from just about everybody on Twitter, um, and particularly everybody from Raider Nation. So the question is, what is going on with all this Marshawn Lynch to Oakland talk, mate? Can you sort it out for us? All right, so let's break it down. I swear my Twitter was just blowing up, and in the end I had to tell people, just look, stop asking me the questions. We'll get to it in Ask Nads, and so this is what you've all been waiting for, guys. Um, in a nutshell, what's happened is Greg Papa, who's the radio host um, for, for the Raiders, um, he's on 95.7 The Game in the Bay Area. He reported on his radio show... Oh, a few days ago, he said that a running back not currently in the league was being looked at by the Raiders to, to potentially be acquired by them. Then, less than 24 hours later, um, the, big, the big ones at ESPN picked it up. So, Adam Schefter and Jacina Anderson, 
they reported in a joint uh, joint article that the Raiders are seriously considering acquiring Lynch. So this sent Twitter into meltdown, or at least my Twitter account. Um, Raider Nation was going ballistic, given that Lynch is essentially, in a nutshell, he personifies everything that Oakland represents. And um, given that like, Lynch, what he's from Oakland, he, he bleeds... Oakland, and he was a Raider fan growing up. He's wanted to play for the Raiders in the past. Um, so it really led me to having to go do a little a little bit of um, digging. So I've spoken to a few people within the team, and I've also spoken to a few sources within the NFL, and they've told me the following. Lynch wants to return to the NFL. That's There's no doubt there. At this stage... He only wants to play in Oakland. Um, that's not going to change either. So it really is Oakland or bust. Um, the next point I want to say is that Lynch has he's informed many of his close friends, including a few current players, that he wants to return to the league and play for the Raiders. So that's another big thing that's going for, going for this. It adds adds a bit of fuel to the fire. Now, furthermore, he's spoken to Pete Carroll. It's, it was an informal discussion. Um, but he, he's told Pete Carroll that he wants to return to play football and he wants to return and play football for the Raiders. Um, at the moment, the Raiders are confident of getting Lynch for free. So it's no coincidence that um, Seattle signed Eddie Lacy um, for a fair bit of fair bit of dough, I think of five or six million. And then all of a sudden we hear this Marshawn Lynch news come out because they've been considering Lynch for a while. I mean, Ian Rappaport tweeted that um, it, they had been considering Lynch 12 months ago, but it just never materialized. So they've been looking for someone in that Lynch mold for a while. So Seattle are cash strapped, not in terms of how much money they have going around, but in terms of their salary cap, they're really strapped. Um, there's no roster spot for him to, in Seattle. So let's just say that Lynch wanted to come out of retirement. Uh, but he has a $9 million cap hit um, should he come out of retirement. And Seattle only have about $15 million of cap space left. So you take away the $9 million, it's down to roughly five or six. Um, you take away the draft class, um, how much money they got there. And then there really isn't a lot of wiggle room left. And Seattle is still trying to acquire players. So the Raiders really have all the leverage in this. So um, if he does have to be acquired by trade, it's going to be for a really low conditional pick. It, it, I've been told maybe a conditional seventh round pick in 2018. Um, it, it's going to be low. It's not going to be high. Then we also have to consider the relationships between both teams. So I've been told... Um, the general manager of Seattle, John Schneider, and then we've also got Raiders general manager, Reggie McKenzie. They're very close. They're, you could almost like join them at the hip. They've, they spent a lot of time together in Green Bay. So in terms of getting a deal done, it, it, there won't be any hiccups. There, there really won't be any hiccups um, on the deal, or at least um, my sources don't foresee there being any hiccups if Lynch does eventually decide to pull the trigger. Um this is the big one, and this is really the reason why Lynch wants to come back, and he sees it um, as a full circle moment coming back to play in Oakland because he played for Cal, Cal Berkeley, so yep. it really would be a full circle moment for him, and he wants to use 
the exposure that he would get in the media um, by coming back to play for Oakland. And he, he wants to use that to raise awareness for his foundation. So he's got a foundation um, specifically aimed at helping the Oak, the kids in Oakland. Um, and that's that's one of the big big reasons he wants to come back. He definitely wants to do it for the kids in Oakland. And so I guess it's a bit of a noble a noble kind of thing, but look, I, at this stage, I'll be surprised if it doesn't happen. Um, there's a lot of fuel going down on this fire. And um, yeah, I, I just think at this point, um, a lot there's a lot of momentum going forward. So what you're telling me is you've shaken your magic eight ball and all signs point to yes. Pretty much, yeah. You hit the nail on the head. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, you've covered that in in quite a lot of detail and you've summed it up much better than I could, so I've got nothing more to add, really. So let's move on to our second question of the segment, and that comes from Ben in Sydney. And Nads, Ben wants to know, will Richard Sherman remain in Seattle in 2017? It's a bit of an odd one. Thanks, Ben, for the question. Um, there's been a bit of chatter around just on social media and uh, in mainstream media, I guess, um, that Sherman's on the trade block. So uh, it's it's a little bit a little bit quirky. Um, Sherman has two years remaining on his deal um, in Seattle, roughly thirteen million per year, there give or take. Um, he's turning 20, 29 years old this month, and the whole rumor sort of like got the seed got planted, so to speak, when Michael Lombardi, who's he spent a lot of time in the league as an executive. He spent time in Oakland. He spent Been time for in ages. Yeah, New England, Cleveland. He spent time with NFL Network. He he's done the rounds, and he said on the Ringers NFL podcast, um, he said that Sherman could be had at the right price. And then all of these rumors came out. Oh, Sherman could get traded. And then what happened? Lombardi came out and clarified his comments. And he said, well, hang on. Almost anyone at Seattle can be had at the right price. So I I think people took his comments and just extrapolated them and ran with them a little bit too far. Uh, Yeah, which which is pretty much what happens. Yeah, yeah, it seems to happen in social media. You you get an inch and uh, they take a mile. Mm -hmm. So... I think at this point it's more of an overreaction than anything. I mean, the guy's still a pretty good cover corner. Yep. And he fits their scheme to a T. Yep, also um, true. I don't see why you'd want to get rid of someone like that. That being said, he was a bit of a headache last year. He's had his had his issues, but the guy's smart. So oh, he is. He went to Stanford. Yeah, exactly. And you listen you listen to him um, in in interviews. He he's certainly not. He's very um, well spoken. Yeah, very extremely. He's certainly not what you expect. No, not at all. All right, thanks, Ben, for your question. Our last question, Nads, it comes from Josh. Josh is in Perth. So we've got all, all the way out in Perth, we're getting listeners, Nads. Obviously, they're that's, three episodes behind, but... <laughs> um, no, nah, we love you guys out in Perth as well. Uh, Josh is question for you, Nads. Where will Colin Kaepernick land, and will he be a starter or a backup? Oh, now that's a tough one. So I'm going to... I've done a little bit of research um, on this question because, to be honest, I didn't really know much about the situation with Kaepernick in terms of how much free agency interest he's had. So 
did a little bit of a Googling, spoke to a few different people, and there was a quote that came out from John Lynch. He was, on, I think he was on the radio a short time ago, and I'll just, I'll take the quote. It said, Kaepernick was in everyone's mind in this league very close to signing a deal with a team at a really good number, and it fell through apparently. Here we are with two quarterbacks, referring to the 49ers, but like we said, we're going to look at every option. The likelihood of that happening has probably gone down significantly, but we're not going to close our mind or our options on anyone, including him. So, just a, I think the last... It might have been the last Ask Nats that we, we did. It might have been the one before, but we talked about how John Lynch was a fresh a breath of fresh air and how he had talked about needing a quarterback and how they had said that, look, we we're going to release Kaepernick even if he did take his option up. And now you've got him already doing a media flip-flop. He's gone 180 <laughs> saying, look, we're, we're, we're looking at potentially bringing him back because he's available. Like, make up your mind, buddy. Seriously. <laughs> You know, like get get your act together. Like we don't we don't want to see any flipping going on because that's just weak and it makes you um, come across as if you're in a position of weakness rather than a position of power, which is what you need being a general manager in the NFL. Spot on. So he's he's flopped there. Um, I want to talk about what Charlie Cassidy tweeted. So he's a former NFL executive in the league. He now. You see him on NFL Network, and you see occasionally he writes articles on NFL.com as well. And he tweeted, and I quote, In my opinion, the reason Kaepernick is not signed is because he is not accurate and not a good decision maker as a dropback quarterback. I'm not sure I agree with that. I watched a bit of 49er tape last year, or from 2016, and I actually thought, Kaepernick was serviceable. He posted 16 touchdowns, just the four interceptions in 2016. And that 49er team, that was horrible. I mean, I could use a lot more words than horrible, but it's a family show. <laughs> Keep um, it PG, mate. Exactly. He, he had no weapons apart from Carlos Hyde. And Hyde, I think, is an overrated running back. He, I, I don't rate him much at all. Um, had Torrey Smith, who's now um, like out, of, out of the 49ers, got cut. Um, I just I don't rate any of the guys really that they had on their had on their roster. They did have um, Vance McDonald. He got signed to a nice extension, but even then, he's not that good. Um, they have Jeremy Curley, who's a nice number three guy. Um, but really, you compare it to like the elite the elite teams in the league and their offenses run rings around what Kaepernick had to work with. And then you also just have to consider that there are guys like Josh McCown who's still getting a gig in the league. You've got a guy like Mark Sanchez, who is doing visits. Um, you've, you've recently had EJ Manuel signing with the Raiders. You know, if these guys are good enough for the NFL, how is Kaepernick not getting, getting a spot somewhere? You know, he's good enough on field when you compare them to the other guys. Quite frankly, I just think it's it's his headaches off the field. And it's not that what he's trying to do is like um, anything groundbreaking. I think it's just he's been in a case of wrong place at the wrong time with, um, with all of his um, almost uh, controversial patriotism yep. decisions. Yeah. And I, I don't want to get political, but at a time when the country... 
of America, its political situation is very um, trepidatious, I guess you could you yeah. could put it. It's teetering on a bit of a seesaw, um, given that Trump's um, been elected. So you've got a lot of emotions running high regarding these sort of political things. And I guess general managers just don't want to bring that sort of attention to their team. No. Um, so Colin, I mean, you've, you've had a good run in the league, but I think you might have to go to Canada if you want to get a gig, man. <laughs> well, that'll have to wait and see, I guess. We'll uh, see where he ends up. But thank you for your question, Josh. And thank you to our listeners in Perth as well. No, thank you very much. Um, we'll definitely be doing an Ask Nads in the future. And um, I think what we're going to have to do is, given what's happening with the Raiders relocation, when we have that Raiders roundtable, uh, the relocation special, we're going to have a, a hashtag just Ask the Crew and um, we're going to get all all of um, the interviewers, interviewees' thoughts about what's going on um, regarding everything there is to know regarding the Raiders' potential relocation to Las Vegas. Because um, if there's any if there's any questions that you have, these guys are going to be the ones that are going to be able to answer it, and you're not going to be able to get this type of coverage literally anywhere else in the media. It's pretty much like speaking to the Adam Schefter um, regarding regarding this Vegas thing. Um, it's it's quite amazing. I've been speaking to these guys for months now. And the amount of information that um, they they've given me um, that they've released, they're tweeting it out well before it gets um, released in like I guess your your main typical mainstream media. Not that these guys aren't in mainstream media, but they're breaking it before anyone else is. And um, this is going to be a great exclusive for our podcast, and I am so excited for our listeners. Oh, it's going to be fantastic! <clears throat> As I said earlier. Make sure you follow us on social media and you'll be kept up to date with uh, when that episode will be coming out. At any given Mun pod, don't forget that. At any given M-O-N-P-O-D, we're on Twitter. Follow us there. We'll give you all the updates. We'll keep you well informed there. All right, Dunk, I know you've yep. been bottling this in all week. It's time for your slam dunk. Yeah, Nads, look, we're, we're getting into our draft previews now. And so I got thinking a little bit about the NFL draft and how hyped up it is every year. It's a huge event. And look, I get excited for it. I really like following it this year in particular with the, you know, the, the new look Colts uh, front office. So it's exciting times. But I just want to go on a, a little bit of a spiel here about one draft in particular. Now, we all, you know, when you're evaluating talent, you always look for the positives. You try and you know, figure out who's my guy, who's the guy I'm looking for, um, who, who have we got at the top of the list. Now, some years, you, you kind of just expect that a draft is going to be good. There's going to be enough good players in it and it's going to be fantastic, but obviously there's, there's you know, 250-odd players that are selected, so there's going to be a lot of people who don't make it. There's one year in particular that I want to focus on, and that's 2013, the 2013 NFL draft, and there's a couple of reasons I want to do that. First and foremost, if you're a player in the NFL who was drafted in 2013, you need to lift your game, okay? It's been one of the, the worst draft classes I've, I've ever seen, but in recent history uh, in particular. So there's a few stats I want to give to you, Nads. Obviously, we've, uh, 
in the in recent times, we've just seen EJ Manuel has been uh, he's left the Bills and he's gone to the Raiders. Now, after that move, the Bills now join the Colts, the Browns, the Broncos, the Jaguars, and the Raiders as teams that have nobody left on their active roster from their 2013 draft class. Not a single player at all. So that's the Bills, the Jags, the Colts, the Broncos, the Browns, the Raiders. That's six teams now that don't have a single player left on their roster. And there are several other teams who only have one or two. I know the Green Bay Packers only have David Bakhtiari, and they had a pretty good draft class. You know, guys like Michael Hyde, uh, TJ Lang. Sorry, not TJ Lang, JC Tretter. Um, and, and guys like that, Eddie Lacey as well as 20, 2013. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of teams now that have basically nobody left from that 2013 draft class, and that's because it was so terrible. All right, I've got another stat for you here. In the 2013 draft class, there were 11 quarterbacks drafted, and I'm just going to run through some of these names. So EJ Manuel, Geno Smith, Mike Glennon, Matt Barkley, Ryan Nassib, Tyler Wilson, Landry Jones, Brad Sorensen, Zach Dysett, and BJ Daniels. So 11 quarterbacks drafted in the 2013 draft. Their combined wins, their combined wins as NFL players, 26 from 11 players in what is now four seasons. 26. Just to put that in perspective, Andrew Luck, who got drafted first overall in 2012, so the year before, so he had one extra year, but it's just Andrew Luck. He's had 43 wins. These 11 guys combined have 26, and that's every quarterback taken in that draft class. Of those 11 quarterbacks, there's only one who is still on his original roster, and that is Landry Jones, who's the backup to Ben Roethlisberger at the Pittsburgh Steelers. This draft class is just... It's just woeful. And, and to throw in another thing, after the fourth round... In that draft, there's only one pro bowler, and that's Latavius Murray. Not a single one after him. Uh, it's just, it's it's one of those drafts that's just been, you know, it's it's been terrible, all, all around terrible. Um, there are obviously a few names here and there that stand out as being good picks. Guys like you know, Tyler Eifert when he can stay on the field, um, Xavier Rhodes for the Vikings, DeAndre Hopkins, Le'Veon Bell, of course. Um, but there are always going to be those one or two really good players, but the majority of this draft has just been really, really ordinary. So I want to use this segment as just a little bit of a warning to, to fans going into the draft. Yes, get excited about your team's prospects, guys you might have on your coming to your organization, but keep in mind that there's no guarantee that these guys are going to succeed at the next level. And that at the end of the day, we're, we're basically, it's, it's a giant crapshoot and nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen. Um, so you've got to be aware that there's no guarantee that it's going to be a successful draft and we could end up with uh, 2013 2.0. So that's my slam dunk, Nads. That's my thoughts on the 2013 draft and I just wanted to get that out there for the listeners. Hey, throwing down a bit of a windmill there. I like it. Well, that brings us to the end of our show, episode number seven. It's all done. So make sure that you're liking us on Facebook. We're at Any Given Monday Pod. And then we're also on Twitter at Any Given M-O-N-P-O-D. That's at Any Given M-O-N-P-O-D. Guys, you can also catch us individually on Twitter. So Nads is at HB Nadolny, N-A-D-O-L-N-Y. And you can catch me at D-Song, S-O-A-N-G. 
Look, we're going to have an absolutely massive show next week. Um, we're going to be covering a bit more of the drafts, as we've said previously. We're also going to be covering anything that's come from the owners' meetings. Um, if the Raiders get relocated to Vegas, we're going to have a completely like an extra show dedicated to just that. So we're going to probably, in all likelihood, have two episodes next week. It's just going to be huge. The NFL really doesn't have any off-season. Wouldn't you agree with that, mate? Totally, mate. It's, it's crazy, and it's just going to keep coming more and more so as we get closer and closer to the draft and then closer and closer to the new season. Uh, exactly. It's exciting times for us as fans. In the meantime, guys, stay safe, take care, keep fighting for those inches. Have a good one. See you later. Can't jump. He's 40. Oh, he's in the man 35. Look at him.